Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Today's podcast is on suicide and black American males. Why suicide in black Americans? Well, there's a belief among most Americans, and particularly among African American adults, that black Americans do not kill themselves. When we think of violent death among black Americans, we think of homicide. Suicide is thought of as a white problem. And while it's true that suicide was not a leading cause of death for African Americans 40 years ago, today it's the third leading cause of death among African Americans age 15 to 24. So why black American males specifically? Well, among all racial and ethnic groups, the suicide rate is the lowest among black American females. And given that black American males, particularly youth, are overrepresented in social services, social workers need to be aware of the risk for suicide and prepare to provide potentially life-saving services. Now, one thing that makes social workers professionals is that we're trained to see things that others do not. But most of us have not been trained to see suicide as an important issue in the black American community. It's my hope that after hearing today's guest, Dr. Sean Joe from the University of Michigan, you'll be more likely to see suicide among black American males as an important clinical and programmatic issue. Dr. Joe holds a joint appointment as associate professor in the School of Social Work and the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan School of Medicine. He's also a faculty associate with the Program for Research on Black Americans at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. Dr. Joe is a nationally recognized authority on suicidal behavior among African Americans. He's the 2009 recipient of the Edwin Schneidman Award from the American Association of Suicidology for outstanding contributions and research to the field of suicide studies, as well as the 2008 recipient of the Early Career Achievement Award from the Society for Social Work and Research. He serves on the board of the Suicide Prevention Action Network, SPAN USA, the Scientific Advisory Board of the National Organization of People of Color Against Suicide, and the Editorial Board of Advancing Suicide Prevention, a policy magazine. He's the co-chair of the Emerging Scholars Interdisciplinary Network Research Study Group on African American Suicide, a national interdisciplinary group of researchers committed to advancing research in this area. He's published extensively in the areas of suicide, violence, and firearm-related violence. In today's podcast, Sean talks about why it's important to look at the suicide rate among black American males, specifically adolescent males. He talks about how recent research has started to put together a profile for black American males most at risk for suicide and some of the factors that seem to protect against suicide. He talks about some of the social and historical factors associated with the increase in suicide rates among black Americans. Sean gives an example of how he talks with black Americans about suicide and stigma. We also talked about recommendations for social workers who are working with black American males who might be suicidal, including talking about issues of faith, valuing the child, having a vision of the child as an adult, and healthy masculinity. Sean discussed some resources for social workers interested in learning more about this topic. 
And we ended the interview with Sean extending an invitation to social work clinicians and researchers to join him to better understand suicide and suicidal behaviors in black Americans. Now, one quick word about today's podcast. I recorded it using a Zoom H2 recorder on location at the Society for Social Work Research annual conference. If you listen closely, you can hear the sounds of San Francisco in the background, a clock chiming, buses loading and unloading passengers, and even some pigeons congregating outside of the interview room. They don't detract from the interview, but I wanted to give fair warning in case you were listening to this podcast anywhere where those sounds might be cause for alarm. So, without further ado, on to episode 56 of the Social Work Podcast, Suicide and Black American Males, an interview with Sean Joe. Sean, thanks so much for being with us here today on the podcast to talk about black American males and suicide. And my first question for you is, how do you define black American males? Most of my work focuses on the positive development of black youth. And while I do that, one of the things that's important to understand is diversity with, among blacks. So uh, African Americans are the largest black ethnic group. The second largest are Caribbean blacks. Based on different cultural practices, norms, and differences, you have to take that into account. So uh, when I talk about black males, we're spanning the diaspora of blacks in the United States. When we talk about black American males and suicide, why is this a significant issue? Why is this something that we want to talk about today on the podcast? Well, I think it's uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, One... Uh, there are many uh, black males disproportionately carry the burden in terms of uh, how many of them are disproportionately uh, have different sort of uh, health and illness, uh, higher rates of joblessness, um, higher rates of criminal victimization um, and incarceration. Uh, but one of the things that were unique um, when we look back, say, about 40 years, is that blacks did not commit suicide at levels that were comparable to whites. And I got involved in looking at uh, homicide among blacks, which is the leading cause of death for black males 15 to 44. That got me involved with suicide. So my interest in uh, understanding suicidal behavior, because in the field, people talked about suicide as the opposite side of homicide, and I don't think that's totally true. But anyway, I got interested because I wanted to know whether or not this was another issue we needed to look at. And given blacks' traditional lower rates of suicide, the fact that between 1984 1999, uh, the greatest increase in the rates of suicide among young people was among black males 15 to 19. So that really suggests that one, we should understand that though blacks have experienced really difficult hardships and continue to experience those hardships in the United States and have all the stressors that should make them be at higher risk of suicide, they weren't, but now a group of, of the population is beginning to exhibit higher rates of suicide. That says we should look at what has changed for that population, learn from that, and then see whether or not we can. Uh, those things are modifiable, and if they are, they might apply not just to blacks but to other groups uh, who have not experienced the level of stress blacks have experienced, but similar, and maybe we might be able to do some prevention around suicide for a larger population. What have you found, or what do you know to be, uh, or some factors that are associated with this increased risk for suicide among Black American males? Well, the great thing is that uh, more people are beginning to work around the area, including myself, 
Um, one, we're learning now about the patterns. We didn't, we didn't even know the patterns uh, up until about 15 years ago. And where we began to see that, one, black rates were increasing. They're still lower than whites. So although black male uh, rates of suicide are, are lower than whites, um, it varies. For example, we're learning that blacks are more likely to use firearms, Though firearm is the primary method used in the United States, their suicides are disproportionately higher in terms of those that involve firearms than their than their white peers. So we, we know that. We're learning that uh, with the little data that we do have on the type of firearms, we learn that blacks are more likely to use handguns. White youth are more likely to use shotguns. Again, that makes an important distinction in terms of how we can consider know what sort of prevention we need to do we're learning of course that there's gender differences uh, among blacks that uh, particularly with adults for example we're learning that it's Caribbean black males who report the highest uh, suicide attempt rates more than African-American males more than African-American females then the lowest group is Caribbean black females so these are things we're beginning to learn in the last five to ten years uh, we're also beginning to learn that psychiatric disorders does have an impact on suicide risk among blacks. So we know that depression matters, we know the other substance abuse matters, but then there are some differences we're learning too. So for suicide attempts, we're learning that anxiety matters more. So anxiety disorders are stronger psychiatric predictors than mood disorders. So we're learning that. So we're beginning to have a good sense of the risk profile of blacks. We know that uh, if blacks uh, are on, on or have any welfare use in the family, that that does not impact their risk for suicide. We know that blacks' risk for suicide does not vary by income. It varies by education as indicator for SES, but not income. So we're getting a little more detail because initially others posit that it was the middle class and upper middle class blacks who might be at risk. We're finding income does not differentiate risk for blacks. It does for other groups, but not blacks but education does. So we're beginning to learn different things that we can begin to use in, in t- when we're considering our prevention strategies in terms of who's most at risk, and that's what we're learning now. Research is done, including myself, at, at, and what I'm doing in my lab on, on race and self-destructive behaviors, we're beginning to try to understand risk processes. And we also begin to focus much more on protective factors. Because understanding risk is important, but we're trying to figure out what can we do to prevent suicide. So we're learning that things that we thought, you know, these putative things we thought were important, like religion and family and social networks and closeness, I think these things do matter. So we're not trying to verify that empirically and how and when they matter. What aspect of religiosity matters? What do I mean by that? Is, Is it religious participation? Is it religious support? Is it a concept of spirituality, which is different from participation? Uh, is it organized participation, meaning that you go to church? Or is it that you can pray, watch religious programs on TV? We're studying and let's try to figure out what matters. And you're, you're doing that because if you find those out, then you'll be able to say, this is what we can do to reduce the risks, uh, strengthen those protective factors, and ultimately uh, reduce deaths by suicide. And that's our goal. And again, the things that might work for for blacks, I think it might be very applicable to a broader swath of Americans because, again, this is a group for whom slavery, uh, Jim Crow, and serious oppression did not lead to high levels of suicide. So uh, we have to understand that what's happening with this population, we must consider. And, for example, one of the things that I've been doing, and we find some good findings for this, is that blacks' attitudes towards suicide changed. 
So between the 60s and the beginning of the 21st century, blacks' attitudes towards suicide changed with younger blacks were more accepting of suicide uh, as a response to life struggles, which were different from older blacks. So we're beginning to learn that. Uh, because bl younger blacks' rates are similar or parallel to younger whites, now it suggests that what was going on with younger whites is that they have a similar accepting attitudes towards suicide. And we find that out in the national study that black, younger blacks, younger Asians, younger Hispanics, and the national representative sample did not vary or didn't statistically in terms of their attitudes towards suicide. They had similar attitudes towards suicide and thus are more vulnerable to suicidal forces. So we're beginning to learn things that we can use. Now, um, in behavioral change, one of the things we try to focus on is if you help change people's attitude towards a behavior, it's something that you can use clinically. So we try to change people's attitude towards smoking, towards drinking, right? And we want to change their attitudes and give them information and knowledge, but it changes their attitude. It's not going to solve someone, you know, stop someone from being suicidal by just changing their norms, but it, it can be helpful if they don't think that this is something, you know, that they should do because they understand that it's, it's, it's a short-term, it's a long-term solution to a short-term problem. Um, though I want to acknowledge that pain, people do feel pain, and, and that's real, rather than not real to us, but it's real to them, and that's what you got to focus on. But our goal is to change attitudes because I do think this is an instance where suicide stigma could be used, and the question is how do you use it? So studying blacks and their suicidal uh, rates and what's related to that is unearthing these sort of concepts and ideas that, well, there's sometimes stigma is good and sometimes stigma is bad, and how do we know when to push it in which way, in which direction, and how, how do we do it in such a way that it doesn't alienate or isolate suicidal adolescents? Right. So it makes us have to think about that. Uh, it doesn't isolate uh, families who ha who are, whose child is experiencing suicide or whose husband experiencing suicidal thoughts, and so we have to figure out how how to use stigma in very unique ways. At the same time, we just don't want to do universal strategies that make suicide a normalized behavior. So again, it, it, it studying blacks and ethnic minorities really gets these sort of issues to come about for us to talk about them because otherwise we don't really think about them and it hasn't been represented in the literature until we started some of these conversations. So you just mentioned um, using the stigma that surrounds suicide. And I was wondering if, if you could talk as if you were talking to black American males about suicide and stigma. What sort of things would you say? And, and, of course, I'm thinking about this because folks are listening to the podcast and they're like, oh, so the process and this and that. But, <laughs> you know, I've got to go see a client right, right. now. And what am I going to say to him? Or what should I be thinking in the back of my mind? Well, it depends on what we're trying to say. If you're trying to communicate that their child might be at risk for suicide, I think you just need to say that. If you're trying to introduced to a child who is suicidal, okay, uh, I think what you can begin to talk about, to, to help with the stigma, I think what I try to focus on is on self-destructive behaviors. Where we define self-destructive behaviors, I'm not talking just risky behaviors, I'm talking behaviors for which if you engage in that behavior, there will be some physical harm to your body. And it can go from, smoking can be included in that to actually suicide. So I use that to kind of destigmatize the conversation. And I would encourage people to do that. Why? Like smoking? Because people engage in smoking behaviors. They know every time they consume uh, uh, or inhale 
it affects their lungs. Things are dying. They're not going to come back. They know that. So that is self-destructive. But it's not necessarily suicidal. But in the long term, death is a possible outcome from what they're doing. And they accept that. So you have to understand. So I can begin conversations about self-destructive behaviors. But my conversation often focuses on concepts of hope um, and primarily faith. And not, not, not fully from a, from a religious point of view. Uh, once I help people understand the behaviors that we're concerned about in the, in the spectrum you know, of self-destructive behaviors, I think you can talk with people about faith to, to help them to and promote the idea simply, and this is where I would go forward with doing it, life is hard. Life is painful. I want to talk about that. But the one thing we understand about life is that things can get better, and I need you to hold on to that. And there's going to be a lot of evidence to suggest that things are never going to get better. I guarantee you there is a day that things are going to get better. And I don't say that because I just want to say it to you. It will get better. And I try to find those examples in their life and in my life that I say, at that time when you thought whatever you were experiencing, that it wasn't going to get better or the pain won't stop or you you stuck your finger, you know, or you got a splinter and you thought, oh, this is never going to end. Did it not get better? But you had this moment that you couldn't tell you that it was going to get better. It's the same way life is, and it does get better. And how do we start to build that um, and focus on agency and help them to understand that? So those are some of the things I would begin to say, that you can begin to talk with families, one, about the behavior that you're concerned about and talk about it specifically, put it in the context of broad self-destructive behaviors, because people do begin to forget that people make choices and they weigh, you know, the pros and cons of behavior. And people start to have this rational choice framework. Like, well, if they knew it was harmful, they wouldn't do it. No, we don't always function like that. We do things that we know are harmful and we accept them and we live with them. So don't, don't put a gap between you and the person because you think they should be smarter than that. You know, we make these choices and we live with them. You do it. I do it. Adults do it. Children do it. And let's, put it in that context, and then focus on the thing I think that that matters beyond just getting mental health services and dealing with, you know, how to process and uh, cognitive, change people's attitudes and cognitive orientation. The idea of talking about faith and agency, not just hope, because hope takes a long time to build. Hope is the fuel. You know, faith is the fuel for hope. So, Sean, I'm really interested to know, uh, at the at the risk of you know, generalizing um, or or uh, talking in stereotypes. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for social workers or clinicians in general who are working with Black American adolescents who might be suicidal. Well, one I think is important to to screen broadly, and just don't look for adolescents who might have the language to present the symptoms that clinicians are used to hearing, you know, uh, to look beyond just uh, the clinical setting, to think about those playgrounds, to think about those rec centers. In one of our studies on, 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 on black adolescents, uh, we, we, we see that at least 50% of those who, who have attempted a suicide uh, did not meet criteria at the time for um, DSM-IV disorder. So you have to think broadly about what you're looking for. And they might be exhibiting their uh, their 
depression in different ways or the anxieties in different ways in terms of they might be exhibiting it behaviorally in terms of how they act not necessarily what they communicate so you have to think broadly about the symptoms and the indicators that these young people might be in trouble one of the other things i think that you must consider as you think of working with, with black adolescents is particularly males is that you have to have a one you have to value that child despite what behavior they're exhibiting and they'll know whether or not you value them. And if your authenticity is not there about that value will come true and it's kind of hard for you to help someone you don't value. It's just it's just kind of hard. And if you don't have a vision and this young person could also grow up and transition to be a a young adult who is working and and could be healthy and could be contributing to society, then you have very difficult time leading them anywhere because you have you don't have a vision for where you need them. So you must have a positive youth development framework as you as you working with them as well. The other thing I want to say is that, well, in the context of, of being able to work with them, uh, just understand that this idea, and, it, you know, Martin Luther King said this in 1967. He raised a quote. I think the guy was Victor Hugo, one of these, right? Mm-hmm. You know, King used to quote these wonderful people. And uh, King's quote was really interesting, and it's about valuing people again. Um, in the darkness, you know, just say the way we create society in such a way it creates a darkness for people and people coming out of the darkness, whether it's the depression and, you know, we talk about it in that way, is that you just can't be concerned and want to blame the sinner for the sins that are created in the darkness. You have to think about the true moral sin are, are those who created the darkness. So, again, you got to take a very, very positive orientation towards who you're working with, and, 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 and that would apply. The last thing I would say, you must have an understanding of, 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 of masculinity when you're working with males, and I think that's an important concept, and particularly one where you want to focus on healthy masculinity. That's what my conversation is right now with clinicians and, and, and people nationally about suicide prevention is that Male masculinity, particularly as it relates to help-seeking, particularly as it relates to behavioral choices, are going to be an important thing. So you must have a concept of healthy masculinity and being able to talk about that. What do I mean? To encourage that vulnerability, seeking help, finding places to discuss your thoughts and emotions in a way that, that is going to be appropriate for depends on the black males that you're dealing with. Uh, those you got to figure out when they have, they have outlets uh, to, be, to express their their. their, their their concerns and their pain in a way that they, they, they don't feel victimized for doing that, but suggest to them it takes much more strength to talk about your problems and to conceal your problems. I think you've got to encourage that in a, in a concept and discussion about masculinity, the type of man they're going to be, and what that sort of strength it takes to be vulnerable versus concealing. You have to talk about healthy masculinity in terms of masculinity is not being able to say other people are weak or to demonstrate that, to be focused on power denomination. You're going to have to help in that. Um, so these sort of conversations, I think, are helpful as you begin to work with black males. So, Sean, my last question for you is a question that might be on the minds of some of the folks who've been listening, which is, okay, so let's say I've got a black American male, I mean, adolescent, maybe an adult, who is suicidal. What resources are out there that I can that I can access to help me be a better service provider that I can you know so I can do a better job uh, working with 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 that client population well I was trying to say before the literature is now being developed a scientific basis for developing interventions and and resources Um, but 
let me take a, if if you're just interested in understanding suicidal behavior, not this particularly black suicidal behavior, I think you can go to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can go to um, American Association of Suicidology, and they're going to have some basic resources about screening and identifying people, or Yellow Ribbon, all one of these other programs. I think the same sort of concepts still apply. We don't know if they're effective for blacks because it hasn't been tested. There are no known interventions developed just for black adolescents that has been tested. So that work hasn't been done yet, and it's one of the things that I originally started out wanting to do, but we didn't even have the basic information for, even for me to do that. That's why I've been spending a great deal of time trying to understand the risk profiles and risk factors and protective factors. Other things that one can do can go to National Organization of People of Color Against Suicide, and they're beginning to pull together different literature, whether it's around grief and grieving, uh, different literature around depression or different psychiatric disorders, and how do you begin to work with blacks around that. To try to get a good read or a book on an experience of blacks, there's no national book on the black suicidal experience, if you want to call it that. So though you got a caller um, finds uh, no time to say goodbye, I think that's a good resource to try to understand and cope with the loss of someone. So I think you would want to look at that. To understand black male experience, particularly the adult male, I think Jonathan John Head's book, uh, Standing in the Darkness, is a good book, which is one of the few books that talk about black depression and his thoughts about suicide, even potential attempt as a professional male, and, and he takes you from his life, you know, from his childhood forward and how he dealt with his mental health and mental illness. So I think you want to, you want to, uh, that's a possible resource uh, for them to look at. Um, What's the other part of your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. no, that's okay. So I asked about resources um, for folks who are wanting to to provide better services, yeah. um, and uh, you know, and I think you addressed that. The other thing that I'm I'm hearing from what you're saying is that there's a real need to do this research. No, this this we we have to do a lot more. And um, one of the things I'm trying to do is to identify young scholars interested in working on, on suicide research on blacks, both in terms of trying to understand the epidemiology and risk, but more who those who are trying to understand how to develop intervention and services uh, for this population. For example, what services are available to help families who are grieving with a suicide? What's the protocol? We don't really have those sort of materials. Uh, we don't know how to work with grieving black families and survivors. We don't have that sort of material, so we need to develop that. So it's, it's a rich opportunity for uh, young scientists and clinicians who are interested in doing science to come and join us and, and get involved in developing this content. It, it's, it's sorely needed. And it's a great opportunity to contribute meaningful science, meaningful information, and it's going to be utilized because, we, again, everything that we turn out, it is the first, and it really, I get really good feedback that we're, we should continue to do what we're doing um, at Michigan around these issues. So if I can be helpful, let me know. Okay. Well, so that, that, that's, that's a really exciting invite. Sort of, uh, um, I, I suspect there's probably a social worker who's listening to this podcast right now saying, Wow, so I could actually contribute to the first, you know, uh, understanding of an intervention or the first understanding of. Well, one exciting thing, for example, one of the things I'm collaborating with the dentist, and you know, is with the, with a big idea that we might be able to develop tools that, and it's a bio, it's a bio it's a biomarker uh, study where you could use human saliva to begin to help identify or screen people for risk for suicidal behavior. And we're working on that. We're two years into it now. And again, it's exciting things that we're trying to come up with. And I focus on that because as social workers, we have to be able to screen and refer 
and even assess. I think those are our primary role in suicide prevention. Though some might be doing treatment and services, but I think our, our primary goal is how can we screen. So we're trying to figure out how to use saliva as a diagnostic tool for identifying suicide. So it's a wonderful, wonderful time to get involved intellectually, and it's meaningful work. Well, that's great. Well, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. And um, uh, we'll put links up on the website for some of the resources that you've mentioned. And uh, it sounds like if if folks are listening to this podcast and they uh, have questions that they can contact you. I'll be glad to. Put your contact information. Thank you again. All right. Thanks so much. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.